You will never properly seek God. You will never properly obey God's commands. And you will never properly teach others if you're prideful. Only the humble can God use. Good evening, everybody. If you could turn within your Bibles, please, to Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. If you've joined our church in Sunday school over the last couple of weeks, we've, our Sunday school class has been going over Ezra and Nehemiah. Today we were in Nehemiah. And last week, or I guess last week's, or two weeks ago now, when I was studying for last week's lesson, I came across this verse in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10. And this verse is a verse that's been dear to me for quite some time now, for several reasons. And as I began studying and reading this verse again, a question that I had previously popped back up into my life. And I thought, now's the time I want to try to figure out this question. What does this mean? This question that I had about this particular verse. And so I want us to read the verse and then I'll pose the question to you and we'll discover what it means exactly from God's word. So Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, when you're there, we'll read it all together. Ezra chapter 7 and verse 10, let's begin. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Now, before I get into the question, let's open with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you so much for Ezra and what, what the amazing man of God that he was and the different men of God that we're going to be looking at this evening. Help us, Lord, to learn what we can and draw closer to you. We pray in your name. Amen. Now, in this verse... Ezra was about to lead a large group of people across almost a thousand miles of desert and enemy territory to Jerusalem to complete the temple rebuild and tr restore true worship to Jehovah. Now, like I said, if you've been in Sunday school, this is very familiar to you, even this morning. This happened again to Nehemiah. Nehemiah would make this same trek uh, several years later. This was a, a big deal. And before Ezra made this huge, long trek, we come to this verse here where Ezra says, the Bible says that Ezra prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So let's, let's read the verse backwards, not literally read it backwards, but let, let's look at the concept of this verse backwards, okay? So it's kind of broken down into four ideas here. Uh, the end of the verse says, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. So before Ezra was to teach Israel or to preach to Israel God's commands, before he did that, he, let's go back, he first wanted to do God's commands. Makes sense? <laughs> I hope every teacher and preacher of the God, of the Bible, does what he teaches first, does what he preaches so this makes sense. Before he preached it, he wanted to do it. Let's back up again. And before he could even do what God commanded, he needed to seek the law of the Lord. So in order, he wanted to seek God first, so then he could do it himself, and then he could teach other people how to do it. Makes sense. But before that, the Bible says, for Ezra had 
prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, then to do it, then to teach in Israel. So it seems that before he could teach it, before he could do it, before he could seek it, he had to prepare his heart to do those things. There was something that happened before all that took place. So my question that I had to myself was, what does it really mean to prepare then? What is he preparing? Because I kind of assumed that to prepare your heart means to seek God, but in this case, that's not exactly true. There's something that even Ezra did in his heart that caused him to want to seek God. So I began to study. I began to look around. We see here in uh, this, this word, prepare, is actually mentioned 217 times throughout the Bible, specifically here in the Old Testament. And the word, the Hebrew word for the word prepare is kun, K-U-N, kun. And it's used several different times in the Old Testament. I should say the, the word kun is used 217 times, but when it's translated into the English, the translators use different words at different times for different meanings, but it all sort of means the same thing. For instance, you'll see the word established oftentimes is the word kun in the Bible. Also, the phrase to make ready sometimes is translated from the word kun. Also, the word firm or standeth. All words, also prepared, as what we're learning here today, use the same word kun. I found that interesting. We know that in Ezra chapter 6, that Ezra was called a ready scribe. That means Ezra was a practicing scribe. He was a person that knew the laws of God better than probably most anyone else that was there. He was the one that surely knew how to teach God's law. He knew the stuff. But head knowledge doesn't mean much if it's not in your heart, if your heart's not prepared a lot of us here, if you grew up in church, you got a lot of head knowledge of God. You know the Bible verses. I used to teach in the super church every Sunday, and sometimes I'd say, okay, kids, we're going to learn about Jonah and the whale. And the smart kids would go, oh, not again. I know this story. Sometimes pastor might, or pastor or someone might preach, and he'll turn to, you know, 1 Samuel 17, David and Goliath. Oh, I know this story. We get this idea, we, have this, we think we know everything, we have this head knowledge of God. But Ezra realized that before, head knowledge means nothing if, it's, if there's no heart for God. And even Ezra realized this. Somebody who definitely knew God's word was Ezra. But before he could teach it, before he could practice it, before he could do it, before he could seek, even seek God, he had to prepare himself to do these things. If his heart wasn't prepared, he could not do these things properly. Because teaching is good, doing is great, and seeking God is even better. But all of this cannot be accomplished if our hearts aren't prepared unto God. So what does it mean to prepare our hearts unto God? And to even further this question, let's look at two quick people in the Bible that had the same, same concept as Ezra. Quickly turn, it's still in, uh, turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 12, if you can. 2 Chronicles chapter 12. And we're just going to stay in Chronicles here for the rest of our, our time here today. 2 Chronicles chapter 12. We're going to go all the way back to 
Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Now, Rehoboam is the fourth king of Israel, first king of the divided nation of the southern tribe. Unfortunately, Rehoboam, who I, th I think he had lots of wisdom, his dad was Solomon, but few things he did wrong, and one of them is explicitly stated right here. Second Chronicles chapter 12 and verse 1, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when Rehoboam had established the kingdom, that word established is kun, by the way, established, so he prepared, himself, prepared the kingdom, and had strengthened himself, he forsook the law of the Lord and all Israel with him. Interesting here. Rehoboam, he prepared or he established the kingdom and had strengthened himself, but nothing to do with God's law. Oh, he had head knowledge. He knew how to be king. He knew the words to say, but he missed the point of all of his father's wisdom. He, he, he learned all the, the secular wisdom, but he missed the point of all the, all the book of Proverbs. What's the core of Proverbs? God. God. He prepared himself. He prepared his kingdom, but nothing to do with God. And look, it, look at uh, verse 14 now. This is Rehoboam, verse 14. And he did evil because... What is those next four words? He prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. He prepared not his heart to seek the Lord. Rehoboam established the kingdom, prepared himself, but never prepared God. Uh, let's look at another guy here. Look at 2 Chronicles 19. So just a couple of chapters to your right. 2 Chronicles 19. This is a good king now. This is King Hezekiah. 2 Chronicles chapter... Uh, sorry, not Hezekiah. This is uh, Jehoshaphat. 2 Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 1. It says, And Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned to his house in peace to Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, that's just like another word for a prophet, the prophet went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Shouldest thou help the ungodly and love them that hate the Lord? That's a rhetorical question. Therefore is wrath upon thee from before the Lord. So Jehoshaphat's actually a good king. He's considered a good king. But one day the prophet comes up to him and says, Why do you help though that which God hates? And the real reason is Jehoshaphat was in line with a bad king, King Ahab. But it doesn't end. Look at verse 3. Nevertheless, there are good things found in thee, in that thou hast taken away the groves out of the land and hast prepared thine heart to seek God. So he, he wasn't a perfect king. No one is. But he did something good. At the core of his heart, he prepared himself to seek God doesn't mean he was perfect. He still messed up from time to time. But we see this example happening in many of the kings of Israel. They didn't prepare their heart or they did prepare their heart to seek God. One more here. Look at verse 20, chapter 27. Chapter 27. We see King Uzziah 
his son here, King Uzziah's son. King Uzziah was a great king. He loved the Lord. He wasn't perfect. He had a, a lapse of pride in his life, and he ended up getting leprosy. Not good. But his son, chapter 27, and verse 6. So Jotham, that's Uzziah's son, so Jotham became mighty because he, what's that word? Prepared his ways before the Lord his God. Jotham also was not perfect. You, you read his life, there's not a lot written about him. But there's one thing he got right, is that his heart was prepared to seek God. So how does one prepare their heart to seek the Lord? It seems to be a prerequisite to truly following the Lord. So how do we do it? So as I began really studying, trying to figure out, trying to see if there's a clear passage in the Bible that gives us direction on this idea of prepare, I kept reading from chapter, from chapter 27 here, and I found myself in chapter 30. So we're going to park here in chapter 30. So I'll turn right, a couple, another page or so, to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. We come to this king called King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was considered by God a good king. He loved the Lord. He also wasn't perfect. He, had a, he made a mistake or two in his lifetime, and he suffered, or his kids would suffer the consequences because of it. But Hezekiah did love the Lord. In chapter 29, we won't read it, but in chapter 29, just for some context here, Hezekiah becomes king, and the first thing he does is he unbolts the temple doors and commands the priests and Levites to start cleaning the temple. Why did he have to do this? Well, unfortunately, Hezekiah's father, his name was Ahaz. Ahaz was a very bad king, and Ahaz desecrated the temple. And if you were to go to chapter 28, verse 24, it says that Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of God and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut the doors of the house of the Lord and made him altars in every corner of Jerusalem. Ahaz, I mean, he went into the temple and he smashed, he cut things up, he destroyed the temple, he bolted the doors shut, and he started building false altars all around Jerusalem. Wicked king. He only reigned for 16 years. On top of that, Ahaz's, his father, was not, he, actually the Bible calls him a pretty decent king, but he, the Bible says that he himself did not go into the temple for the 16 years that he reigned. So we're looking at about 30 years now. For 30 years, Israel had not come into the temple and consecrated their lives, done sacrifices, and worshipped God properly. Because the temple hadn't been used for 32 years at least. So Hezekiah had his work cut out for him. First thing he does, the Bible says in the first month of his reign, he kicks the doors of the temple open. For seven days, the priests tirelessly work, and they clean the place up. They fix the vessels, they get all the stuff out, and they get it perfect and ready for sacrificing. Then he commands the priests and Levites to sanctify themselves, and then they start performing sacrifices. And they invite all of, the, all of Jerusalem, all of Judea to join. Remember, it's a divided kingdom. There were still ten tribes that did not worship God. But Judah did, and they brought the, the tribe together, and they worshiped God, and a huge revival breaks out. And Hezekiah is rejoicing 
And he sings praises unto God and he glorifies God and he offers more sacrifices. And it's a wonderful chapter. Read chapter 29. It's a fantastic chapter. Well, after all, it all, all the dust settles, all the excitement settles, Hezekiah's heart didn't settle. He's, he was hungry for God. And Hezekiah had this crazy idea in chapter 30. This crazy idea. Hezekiah, well, let's read now. Chapter 30, verse 1. And Hezekiah sent all Israel and Judah and wrote letters also to Ephraim and Manasseh that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel. Let's just pause here for a second. This is something that has never been done before. Hezekiah was king only of the southern tribe, only of Judah. The, the ten northern tribes who right now were being ruled by a king named Hosea was a wicked king. The, the, the northern tribes did not talk to Judah. The, the northern tribes did not talk to the south. There was war. There was always civil war. There was fighting. There was violence. There was animosity. There was hatred. They didn't like each other. And Hezekiah has this idea. He's looking around. He's seeing God's people united for once. And he thinks to himself, maybe I can get all of Israel in on this. He wasn't trying to take the kingdom. He wasn't trying to, to bring them together so he could rule. He just wanted them to come back to God. It was a sincere request, a sincere desire of his heart. So verse 2. For the king had taken counsel and his princes and all the congregation in Jerusalem to keep the Passover in the second month. For they could not keep it at that time because the priests had not sanctified themselves sufficiently, neither had the people gathered themselves together to Jerusalem. So he took counsel and they said, yeah, we should do this, king, but not, not right now. We're not ready yet. Get, we'll do it next month and the second month. Because we need time to prepare, and also people need time to make this long journey, this trek. So Hezekiah, he agrees. So verse 4, and the thing pleased the king, and so, and all, the congregation. So we know for at least 30 years, Judah hasn't had the Passover. But... The crazy part was the northern tribe. Now you realize that at this point, it had been almost 250 years since Israel was, since, uh, since Solomon was king. Over 250 years since Solomon was king, since the kingdoms were united. Because as soon as Solomon wasn't king, Rehoboam split the kingship and a guy named Jeroboam took over the northern tribe. And the first thing Jero Jeroboam did is he erected two altars, one in Bethel, one in Dan, and said, you are not allowed to worship in Jerusalem anymore. This is where you worship. You worship these false idols in Dan and in Bethel. No one goes to Jerusalem. He was scared that the people would get united and revolt against him. So for, for at least 250 years, the northern tribe had not celebrated the Passover, unless they maybe snuck and trickled in and did it with Judah. This has been a long, long drought. 250 years, nobody alive 
has seen the Passover take place. No one lived to be 250 years at this point. No one has seen it. No one, they've only heard the stories passed down from their great-grandparents. No one's done this before. This is a crazy idea from Hezekiah. But this is exactly what happens. In verse 5, they establish a decree to make proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba even to Dan that they should, keep, they should come to keep the Passover unto the Lord God of Israel at Jerusalem. For they had not done it of a long time in such sort as it was written. Hezekiah says, this is crazy, but we got to at least invite them. We're going to do it no matter what. Let's invite everyone else just, just for fun, just to see if they'll come. So how does one prepare their heart to seek the Lord, you may ask? Well, long story short, some people come. Not everybody comes, but some people do come. They come from all different tribes, not just Judah, but all different tribes. They actually start coming, and it's a pretty amazing feat here. And then we come down to verse number 10. And Hezekiah now, in uh, verse number 10, uh, well, let, just for context, we have to, uh, we'll go back to this. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. This is, this is the exciting part of the whole chapter here. This is a question I've had for myself for a long time. So uh, when I finally discovered it, I found it pretty amazing. So now we come here to chapter 10, or sorry, uh, verse 10. So the posts, that this is, that's like the, the, um, the message that Hezekiah wrote. So the posts passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulun, but they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. Ha, you want us to go to Judah to the Passover? Are you crazy? I don't even know what the Passover is. I've only heard tales of this. Verse 11, though. Nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. Some people did come. How does one prepare their heart to seek the Lord? The first thing I find here, and I'll explain, is preparing your heart starts with humbling yourself. It starts with humbling yourself. You say, why is this? I'm going to skip ahead for a little bit, and then we're going to come back and explain. You see, because in 2 Chronicles chapter 30, when Hezekiah is, he dis, he, the Passover takes place, Judah is excited. He, everyone's excited about what's happening here. Go down to verse 17. It says, For there were many in the congregation that were not sanctified, Therefore, the Levites had the charge of the killing of the Passover for everyone that was not clean to sanctify them unto the Lord. For a multitude of the people, even many of Ephraim and Manasseh, Issachar and Zebulun, had not cleansed themselves. Yet did they eat the Passover. Otherwise, then it was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, 
The good Lord pardon everyone that prepareth his heart to seek God. The Lord God of his fathers, though he be not cleansed according to the purification of the sanctuary. And the Lord hearkened to Hezekiah and healed the people. Wow, so what happens here? The people are gathered together. But these people, the people from the northern tribe, they had not been to this before. They, they weren't properly cleansed and sanctified. They did, probably didn't even know what that meant. I mean, it had been hundreds of years since they had done anything like this, which, which means they've never done anything like this. They didn't know all the ceremonial laws, perhaps, that they, that they sh- were supposed to do. They didn't really know what they were supposed to do. They just knew that God was in town and they wanted to be there. And Hezekiah, realizing this, looks up to heaven and says, Lord, some of these people here may not be perfectly ceremonially sanctified according to the law of Moses. But Lord, those people that are here, that their hearts are prepared for you, those people that are here sincerely that, and that just want you, Lord, would you overlook it just this one time, these ceremonial things, and God, would you allow them to peacefully take part in the Passover? Because, Lord, I just want the people to find you. And the Bible says in verse 20 that God grants Hezekiah this prayer request. I mean, this is an amazing request. Hezekiah is not asking for their sins to be pardoned. He's not doing this. He's just asking God to allow the people to come and see him, to see God. Hezekiah says it very specifically, though, verse 19. But Lord, only pardon the ones that prepareth his heart to seek God. Only the ones that came. Because you know some of them came to Jerusalem. Maybe uh, mom and dad came and they kind of dragged their kids along. Their kids' hearts probably weren't prepared to seek the Lord. Although, if you read in tradition here in the Passover, this was typically something that just the men would come to. Because think about this. If there's millions and millions of people in Israel, all of them cannot <laughs> come inside the walls of Jerusalem. It's too many. Generally speaking, it was, this was the men, the leaders, who would come and congregate and enjoy themselves at the Passover. So, assuming they kept sort of the tradition there, this would have been the men coming, but no doubt... Maybe some, some uh, friends think, thought, thought to themselves, you know what, let's go to the Passover. I'm kind of curious. Who knows what's going to happen? Maybe we'll get some free food. So some of them may have gone down for the wrong reason. But there was a lot of criticism going on. A lot of people mocking Hezekiah for this. So I, I, I tend to think that if you chose to go, you really wanted something. Something was missing in your life. Because you know your neighbors are going to see you going off, packing your bags and headed to Jerusalem. So I think most of these people that made this long trek to Jerusalem, they may not have exactly knew what they were going to. They may not have understood all of it, but they realized, you know what? I want God. I don't really know what that is yet, but I want Him. Now, I go back to our first point. When Hezekiah sent the post out, the the letter to be read throughout all of Israel, this is what he told them to do. You're still in chapter 30. Go back to verse 6 now. I know I'm jumping around this chapter a bit. But in in verse 6, this is the letter that Hezekiah wrote. 
So the posts went with the letters from the king and his princes throughout all Israel and Judah. And according to the, to the commandment of the king, saying, this is what it said, Ye children of Israel, turn again unto the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, and he will return to the remnant of you that are escaped out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. And be not ye like your fathers and like your brethren, which trespassed against the Lord God of their fathers, who therefore gave them up to the desolation as ye see. Now be ye not stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves unto the Lord and enter into his sanctuary, which he hath sanctified forever, and serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. For if ye turn again unto the Lord, your brethren and your children shall find compassion before them that lead the captive, so that they shall come again into this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if ye return unto him. That was the post. Can you see now why some people laughed at this? Hezekiah sent a post throughout all the land. It sounds like a modern day. He, he, he posted on his Facebook page. He sent out a post for people to read, to listen to. And it basically told them to repent of your sins. Come to the Passover and find God again. Don't listen to your fathers because your fathers did it wrong. Don't listen to your mothers. Come back to God. Turn yourself. Yield yourself unto God and find sanctuary in God. So naturally, some people started to laugh and mock. But some people didn't. And I want to pause here for a second. The people that laughed may not have realized this, but if you were to read, if you were to go to because the king, of, the king of Israel right now at this time was King Hosea. And if you know anything about the king's histories, Hosea was the last king of the northern tribe. Two, maybe three years later after this letter was written, Assyria would come in and completely take over the northern kingdom. Two, three, maybe three years later. This may have been the last chance that these people had to repent and turn to God. Even in the midst of a wicked king, Hosea, who wasn't listening to God, God still gave them one last chance to repent. Most of them mocked and laughed. But the Bible did say in verse 11, Nevertheless, divers, some of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun, what did they do? Humbled themselves. So these people that came... They didn't really know much about God. They weren't sanctified properly. They weren't following the law to a T. They weren't really even seeking God. But Hezekiah says, Lord, forgive the ones that prepared their heart to come. So what did these men do to prepare their heart to, to come? The first thing they did here is they humbled themselves. They humbled themselves. Man, 
Humility isn't just somebody who's shy and kind of timid, you know, kind of keeps their head low and stays in the corner. That's not humility. That's not what we're talking about here. We know what pride is. God cannot use a prideful person. The opposite of humble is someone who is pride, someone who thinks much of themselves. In fact, no one can use a prideful person. If, if you're trying to apply for a job and the boss could sense into you that you're not teachable, because if you think you know everything, the boss isn't going to hire you because he knows he can't teach you anything. This guy thinks he knows everything. Next, you're not going to make, you're not going to ever climb your way up, into, up the corporate ladder if you're prideful. You're not going to get hired. You're not going to get to if you're not moldable, if you're not humble, if you're not teachable. Young people, oftentimes, they think they know more than their parents. They say, well, how, how is this possible? You're 12, and my parents are in their 50s, 40s, 50s. How do you possibly think you know more? Well, you know, I, I know more about technology than they do, so I'm smarter. Oh, you could, you're better at their phone than your parents are. Well, you're supposed to be better. You're younger. That's not. doesn't mean you know more than your parents. Maybe you're better at video games than them. That's great. Maybe you know more slang in the world today. That's actually a bad thing, but sure, if you think that's, that's knowledge, that's great. But I guarantee you, you do not know more than your parents. You do not know more about life than your parents. You may know more about these small niches in life, but you don't know more about living than they do. Don't ever get so prideful that you can't even be taught by your own parents. You won't be used of your parents or used of God if pride is something that's stuck to us. And I'll be honest, some of the most prideful people in this world oftentimes tend to be people who grew up in church. Think about it. You grow up in church your whole life. Remember what I was saying earlier? Ah, oh, I know this story. Yeah, I know, I know that. Ah, oh, pastor preaches the same thing all the time. If that's, if that's your mentality sometimes, you're not listening. Because there is so much to learn from God's word. And if you're only hearing the same thing each and every week, then there is a problem in your life. There's a pride problem in your heart. Pride is something that builds up, and the people that grow up in church, they're kind of hardened to everything, because some of you have read the Bible through before. You have heard all, most of the stories, or maybe you've heard all the stories. So does that mean you've learned everything there is to know about God now? You know, you don't swear, you don't drink, you don't have tattoos, you, know, you, don't get, you, know, you haven't gotten into trouble with the law, you don't drink. Maybe you even work pretty hard. You have a decent family and your family even loves you. You think you have it all down. So what, what can church offer me more? What can this pastor teach me? This is the prideful mentality that creeps up in our life and God can't use that. And if that's your mentality, you're not going to stay in church for very long. You're going to find your way out. When soon as the door is open and you see a way out, you're gone. Maybe for some of you it's off to the next church or maybe for some of you it's out of church completely. We need to be careful with pride. We don't have time, but in chapter 32, this very thing actually happens to Hezekiah. Hezekiah let pride get into his life, and it almost cost him his kingship. Fortunately, God allowed him to, God forgave him and sort of prolonged his punishment. Pride is a scary thing, but humility is the only kind of person that God can use. Humility is where it's at. Though it seems most mocked, some were humble enough, teachable enough to listen to the posts. 
They weren't just listening to mock. They were listening and they let it affect their hearts. They listened and thought, maybe that's what I'm missing. Maybe that's what I need. You will never properly seek God. You will never properly obey God's commands. And you will never properly teach others if you're prideful. Only the humble can God use. Second Chronicles 7.14, Solomon has just finished dedicating the temple. And this is a very famous verse. He says, if my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and will heal their land. Solomon is saying, look, before you could even get close to God, the first thing you have to do is humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. Humble yourself before God. When you look up this word humble here, the idea in the Hebrew, it's the idea of kneeling, of submission, of submitting under authority. You don't kneel before just anyone. You kneel before somebody that you're giving honor and reverence to. That's why we, when we pray, at the end of the service, we have a thank you prayer meeting. We always suggest that you kneel. It's the best form of worship. Kneel. Some even go as far as to lay prostrate completely on the ground. To get as low as you can. That's the idea of humbling yourself, lowering yourself, and trying to lift someone else up. That's the greatest form of worship. That's the, the beginning, I should say, of worship. In the post... Hezekiah was also challenging them to ignore their fathers, to turn from their sin. And let me be honest with you, you cannot properly turn from your sin without being humble. Because that's one of the most humbling things in life, is to admit that you're wrong. Isn't that hard? <laughs> it's hard. Prideful people can't do it. I wasn't wrong, I just said it wrong. I wasn't wrong. We just make up excuses why. You know, I was the oldest in my family. I hated losing to my younger brothers. Actually, I don't think I ever did, really. But in case they ever did, sometimes they would, we would we'd be playing a game and a younger brother would sneak in a win somehow and they'd win. And I would, nah, you didn't really win. I was just, you know, my shoelaces were too tight. You know, I'd make up excuses. I was too prideful to admit that my younger sibling could actually beat me. We were just home in Texas a few weeks ago. And I don't know why we're brothers. Sometimes we get into wrestling, you know. We get out on the grass and try to... This is the first time I didn't try wrestling with my other brother, Jake. He's like 22 now. He's in the prime of his life. He works out. He's big. I had nothing to prove anymore. <laughs> I didn't want to come back to Texas with a hurt back. I kept my pride intact, you know. And I just said, you know, buddy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you have this one here. I'll pass the baton on to you now. You can pick on the younger siblings. i got to look out for myself now. Humbling takes place. And that's the only kind of people that God can use. Hezekiah, through the inspiration of God, of course, sent out this post and was encouraging people to turn to God, to not be like their fathers, and to yield to God. And that's what I want us to see in verse 11. There's only two things. The first one was to humble yourself. How, we, how do we prepare our hearts to see God? The first is to, prepare, is to humble yourself. And the second, in this context, look what it says here. 
Nevertheless, divers of Asher and Manasseh and of Zebulun humbled themselves and, what's the last couple words? And came to, so they humbled themselves and then they actually went to Jerusalem. They humbled and then they went. They, they confessed their sin and then they committed themselves to God. They didn't just, they didn't just humble themselves before God and realize, yeah, Lord, I do need you, but maybe I'll go next year. No, no, they humbled themselves and said, I want to change right now. I don't even know what the change means yet. I'm not even sure all the things I'm supposed to be doing, but I know where I need to be, and that's in Jerusalem. So we're going, family. We're going, son. We're going, sons. Hey, you buddy, you're coming with me. We need to go. This is where we need to be. They humbled themselves, and then they went to Jerusalem. Or you can say this way, they, they confessed, and then they committed themselves unto God. Because one commentator put it this way, before you can come into communion with him, you must come into covenant with him. Before you come into communion with God, you first have to come into covenant with him. You first have to commit yourself to the Lord. As it says here in verse 8, Hezekiah was charging them to yield yourself to God, to submit yourself to Him. This phrase, yield, literally means give the hand to the Lord. That's the literal interpretation, to shake hands, to strike a deal or a bargain with God, to kneel down and make a covenant with Him and say, Lord, I want you. I don't know what that is yet in this case, but whatever it is, I need to find you. You are what I need for God. So in this context, when they humbled themselves and when they yielded, they were confessing sins and they were coming under his authority. Many times in life we're committed to certain aspects, certain avenues. We're committed to work. We're committed to this and we're committed to that. Sometimes we could even be committed to church only, but if you're not committed to God then you're going to find yourself coming to church always, always coming away empty because your commitment is to church, which is good, but your commitment shouldn't just be, I need to go to church because like, that's what you're supposed to do. Your commitment needs to be to God. And when your commitment is to God, now when you go to church, it's easier to find God, to seek God, to obey God, and then to teach others how to do it. But how many times have you come to church on Sunday? And you just you left the same way you came in. Because were you coming to church for God? Or were you coming to church for church? Were you coming to church for fellowship? Once again, fellowship is a good thing. It's hard to find good Christian fellowship these days. Most of the time, it's hard to find it at work. Kids have trouble finding it at schools. But hopefully, you should be able to find it here at church. But your ultimate goal for church and Sunday should be God. Parents, your ultimate goal for your kids should be God. Those other things in life that are temporary will end, but God doesn't end. It's a remarkable chapter. I could go more into detail, but I think I've said enough. Hezekiah invites everyone to worship God at the Passover. Some mocked, 
but some came. And those that came, according to Hezekiah here, they weren't perfect. They didn't have it all together. They didn't know the different laws and ceremonies, but they came. And the only reason they came is because they confessed their sin and they committed to God. They humbled themselves and they went after God. Ezra, the first verse we read, chapter 7, verse 10, for Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Before Ezra could teach, before he could even do, and before he could even properly seek the law of God, he had to first humble himself, cleanse his heart, and commit himself unto God. A, a yielding, a, a submission, a commitment to God where you say, God, I want you in my life. Nobody knows God perfectly, but it starts with you wanting God. And I challenge you today, this is a, it's a simple idea, it's a simple concept, but determine to want God. Because if you don't, you're going to find yourself skipping around, perhaps, church to church. You're going to find yourself not even being in church someday. Young people grow up in church, and church is just church to them. It's duty. And if, 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 God is, if their commitment isn't unto God, then they're going to find themselves having work on Sunday, and they're going to find themselves working so much that it takes them away from God. Sometimes work does happen on Sunday. I'm not saying that sometimes you can't avoid it. But oftentimes, work starts piling up and schoolwork and all these things start building up. And if their commitment was never to God in the first place, then work's going to pack down God and homework. And then all of a sudden, friends are going to sneak in. And then maybe a relationship is going to sneak in. And then this commitment to God is going to keep getting packed down. But if God was a commitment to you in the first place, then he'll always stay up here. And though life will throw things at you, it will stay under God. And he will be at the forefront. And before you could even properly seek and obey him, you have to commit to him first. So that's my challenge to you this evening. Humble yourself. Keep your heart clean. And commit yourself unto the Lord. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.